Well, this morning, with it being communion, I thought it would be maybe helpful if we just focused today on the Lord's table, if we just focused on communion and focused on the death of Jesus Christ, His work on the cross for us. And so I invite you to take that Bible this morning and look over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, and I've titled the message, The Doctrine of the Cross. The Doctrine of the Cross. We'll just take a brief break here from the book of James with the Lord's table and with our event tonight. I thought it might be appropriate to just put our focus and our attention around this wonderful theme in Isaiah 53. In fact, let me read it and you follow along beginning at verse Uh, Well, let's go to verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, for he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a classic, classic text of Scripture. It was theologian Don A. Carson who said this. He said that I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central peace it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Carson said, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the sinner, we are not far removed from idolatry. I think that's well said. And so this morning, with a desire to take us back to the central place of the cross as the communion table is set before us. We'll pass the elements in just a little bit. I wanted to turn us here, as we've just read, to Isaiah 53, 
one of the most glorious passages in God's Word. And it provides us a wonderful prophetic picture and portrait of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Gresham Machen, the great theologian, said of this text, he said, if there is any one passage in the Old Testament which seems to be the heart of Christian prophecy, it is that matchless 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It is just a wonderful, wonderfully rich, theologically rich chapter. There is really, when you read that passage, no way that human imagination could ever account for all of the intricate details of this prophecy. I mean, only a sovereign God could foresee that the person of Christ would fulfill all these details with exact precision 700 years later. Now, in Isaiah, Christ is the suffering servant. Sometimes when you read through Isaiah, the nation of Israel is the suffering servant. But clearly here, in Isaiah 53, we have a messianic prophecy fulfilled only in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you glance down at 53 verse 12, it makes the person of Christ the object of Isaiah's servant. In fact, look again at verse 12. There, he said, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered for the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It is clearly a passage about Christ. That does not fit a description of for Israel as a nation or any other person for that matter. The representation of Jesus as the one that Isaiah identifies is unmistakable. In fact, in addition, how could it be said of Israel? Look at verse 6 when it says there at the end of verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's clearly fulfilled in the person of Christ. In fact, do you remember back in the New Testament in Acts chapter 8 when Philip had met the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza? He inquired about this very passage from Isaiah 53. And Philip asked the eunuch and he said, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then the Bible says in Acts 8.35 that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So here this passage is clearly regarding the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just looking at the big picture of it, Isaiah 53 actually begins back in Isaiah 52. If you just look back there, just to set the big picture, it begins there in 52, verse 13. And from Isaiah 52, verse 13, there are five stanzas that run through um, 53, as we'll study, verse 12, okay? Five stanzas. And for our time this morning, I would like us to just address the fifth stanza found in 53, verses 10 through 12. And as we look at that fifth stanza, I want to highlight for you and for us as we prepare for the Lord's table, 
three doctrinal truths that spring forth in Christ's role as the suffering servant. That's what we want to study. I want to look first at the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Okay, Then secondly, look at the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the doctrine of justification. And we'll just touch on these. So let's look at what Christ accomplished as he went to the cross for us and what that cross revealed to us by the Scripture in the Word of God. Let's look first at the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And if you will, look down at verse 10. It is a staggering statement. It's an incredible statement. It says there at the beginning of verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It says there in verse 10, He has put him to grief. Lock in on just that for a moment. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so when you think about Christ, and though utterly blameless, the cause of his suffering was put forth by God himself. As you you think about the cross, as you think about God's sovereignty... Certainly, it was an atrocious crime committed against him. And yet here, bound up in the counsel of God, you read it, underline it there in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so you might ask, was the cross of Christ carried out by the wicked plans of evil men? And my answer would be, oh, yes, it was, because it says very clearly in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, When Peter was preaching, he said, This man, speaking of Christ, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there's no question that it was carried out by the wicked plans of evil men. There it says in Acts 2.23, he was put to a cross by the hands of godless men, and these godless men put him to death. In another sense, though, we would say no, It wasn't only carried out by the plans of wicked men because it says in Acts 2.23, this man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So when you think of the cross, he was delivered up and it was already in the mind, in the heart, in the foreknowledge and plan of Almighty God. So though... Godless men are held responsible for their actions. Our Lord was ultimately delivered up by the sovereign plan of God the Father. It is a staggering thought. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, all Christ's suffering on the cross were foreordained. They did not come to him, come on him, by chance of accident. They were all planned, counseled, and determined from all eternity. Ryle said, not one throb of pain did Jesus feel, not one drop of precious blood did Jesus shed, which had not been appointed long ago. And then he finished and said, infinite wisdom planned that redemption should be by the cross. 
End of quote. I mean, within this text, you see the sovereignty of God. And so in your mind and in your heart, never think of the cross of Christ as an unexpected tragedy. I mean, the truth is, is that behind all the events surrounding the cross is that God was in perfect control of every single detail. And it pleased the Lord. In fact, you might ask the question, and many have and they still do today, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? I mean, you can turn and look. You don't have to, but in Acts 4.27, there it says, in this city, the apostles said, gathered around and against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, they were all around Christ, and we understand that. But in 428 of Acts, it says, they did, here's what it says, quote, whatsoever your hand and your predetermined plan uh, had destined to take place. In other words, oh, they were held accountable, they're responsible but only they did what your plan had predestined to take place. May I say to you that the cross of Christ is the ultimate proof of the sovereignty of God at work in a wicked world. In a mysterious and even glorious way, Jesus Christ was God's sacrificial lamb. It is why that in the book of Revelation in 13.8, It could say of our Lord that he was slain from the foundation of what? Of the world. In other words, all the events of the cross didn't just somehow get out of control. Somehow it just took a wrong turn. Somehow in the mayhem of the moment, something took place. No, the Bible's going to say here in 5310, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And here's the implication for you, for I. If God was in perfect control when godless men carried out the greatest evil ever committed, could we then doubt his sovereignty over history today? If God, listen, was in control, and he was, when his own son was crucified, what makes you think that he's lost control over your life today? The point is, is he is in absolute sovereign control at the greatest time when the greatest evil was ever being committed against the greatest man. Years ago, there was a a rabbi, maybe some of you remember his name. His name was Harold Kushner, and he wrote a book titled, When Bad Things Happen to What? Good People. He's a rabbi, the book became a bestseller. And what Kushner argued was this, he said that human tragedy proves... He said that God is simply not in control of everything. God, Kushner said, can't stop bad things from happening. He is, in his words, not sovereign. God, he went on to say, is merely a victim of evil like the rest of us. That was his thesis. But it it comes closer to home. Some years ago, there was a tornado that demolished a Methodist church in Alabama, and it actually happened on a Sunday morning during church. Twenty people in this Methodist church in Alabama were tragically killed, including the young four-year-old daughter 
of the pastor. And when a reporter asked the pastor and his wife if their faith was shaken by the accident, here's how he replied, quote, not at all. He said, God did not have anything to do with this. He said, it was an accident, a tragedy, he said, beyond God's control, end of quote. I mean, certainly our hearts grieve with those parents who were expressing, obviously, the deep sorrow and loss over a child. But really, when you think about it, their theology is a recipe for disaster. Listen, if God is not sovereign over life's tragedies, how could we possibly believe that he is able to make all things work together for our good? I mean, if things happen by chance, by accident then what assurance do you have that God's purposes will ultimately be fulfilled? We wouldn't. I mean, what a relief it is when our world unravels that God's never has, right? He said this. In fact, look back in Isaiah 46. Glance back just a couple chapters. Isaiah 46, that classic statement there in Isaiah 46 and verse 9. He said, remember the former things of old. He said, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, all my purpose. What a statement. I mean, Scripture, beloved, tells us that nothing ever happens by accident. Jesus would say not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from what? The Father's knowledge. In fact, one theologian put it this way. He said, don't forget that God wrote all history in eternity past before the foundation of the world. So we're, we're, we're living in it, are we not? But not with God. He already wrote it all down. In fact, in the wisdom and in the mind of God, he sees the beginning and he sees what? The end. And what we see things in a sequence, God doesn't. He sees them all at the same time. He can see, if you will, when Moses part of the Red Sea, and us preaching, me preaching, you sitting in this auditorium all at the same time. In fact, that's he's just a sovereign God. He's an all-wise and all-knowing God. Listen, the final chapter is already written in his book. He declared the end from the beginning. He is, the scripture says, Alpha and Omega. There is nothing whatsoever that ever, 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 takes God by surprise. He's never surprised. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's all places present with his entire being. Nothing takes him by surprise. He has already planned everything that comes to pass. And God absolutely guarantees that all his purposes will be established. Every single detail of everything that happens is in accordance with his divine plan right down to the very number of hairs on your head. Listen, when you look here in 53.10, the cross of Christ reveals the mighty purposes of a sovereign God 
in absolute control. I mean, you might ask, why would God's sovereign plan involve our Lord in such a painful death? Well, there's a second doctrine that we discover in Christ's death on our behalf. Look, it's again in verse 10. It's in the middle of verse 10. It says there, when his soul, here's why he allowed him to suffer. When his soul makes an offering, it says, for guilt. In fact, backing up just a little bit, in verse 10, it says, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Here is a wonderful aspect of our Lord's death. Sinless, spotless Lamb of God was delivered up for our sins. And so here, this second doctrine is not only is God sovereign, but secondly, this doctrine speaks of his substitutionary atonement in verse 10, when it says his soul makes an offering for our guilt or for our sins. Certainly you remember in the Old Testament, as we'll partake of communion in just a moment, but when atonement, back in the book of Leviticus, was being made for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the individual, a priest would take his hands and lay his hands, if you will, and cover the sins of the nation by transferring those sins to, if you will, the sacrificial lamb that he would take its life right before him. And in a very similar way, as you get to the New Testament, our sins, your sin your personal offenses against God were imputed, if you will, to Christ in such a manner that he bore the consequences of your sin, which is what? Which is death. That is why we call this the substitutionary atonement. In Christ, being our substitute, your sins were taken away. Christ, when he went to the cross took our place to bear our judgment, even though he had never, ever sinned. That's the essence it says there in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. In fact, if you glance back, look at chapter 53. Look at this ideal of the substitutionary atonement of Christ throughout this chapter. Look at verse 4, where it says there, Surely... He has borne our, what? Griefs. It says there in 53.4, He's carried our sorrows. So in other words, when Christ goes to the cross, He bears, if you will, your sins. He bears, if you will, it's placed on Him, your grief. He bears, if you will, our sorrows, as the text says. Look at verse 5. It says that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, it says, for our iniquities. Amazing. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, you have this doctrine that emerges out of 53 of his substitutionary atonement, his death on your behalf. And just as those sins were transferred, if you will, in the death of that sacrificial animal, now your sorrows, now your griefs, now, as it says in verse 6 there, in verse uh, 5, our transgressions and our iniquities, they were all taken in the person of Christ. 
In fact, you glance down at that familiar text in verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, you know that phrase, what is it? The iniquity of us all. Incredible, incredible thought. I mean, it really makes no sense, does it? Sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God who never sinned goes to the cross for you to take your griefs, your transgressions, your iniquities. And in that transaction with a holy God, all your iniquity, verse 6, was laid on him. That's the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. He stepped in your place. He took your guilt. He took your pain, if you will. He took your sin and even your sorrows. In fact, glance down at verse 53 there. In verse 8, when it says in the middle of 8 that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. That's you. He was stricken for you. In fact, glance down at verse 11, where it says there at the end of verse 11, the very end, that he shall bear their iniquities. In fact, look at verse 12, where it says at the end of verse 12, he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Here it is. Yet he bore the sin of many. In other words, he bore your sin. I think you well remember Romans 5, 8, that God shows his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That great refrain by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him to be sin who knew no, what? Sin. I mean, this is the incredible substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. You remember months back when we were in 1 John, it said in 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when you think of communion, when you think of the cross, you see not only is he in absolute sovereign control of every single detail of our life, But as Christ goes to the cross, he goes to the cross, stepping in your place. You and I are the one who deserve death. Our sins created a separation from us and a holy God. And Christ steps in and takes our place on the cross. He was delivered up for our sins. He was our substitute. He paid the price. He paid the price of death for your sins. I'm thinking of, remember when the Baptist set his eyes on Christ, and you know the phrase in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sins of the world. And of course, as John beheld Christ, he beheld him walking towards him, but we know that that was prophetic, if you will, that Jesus became the Lamb at his sacrificial death at the end of the Gospel of John. I'm thinking of, of that great statement by Paul in Romans 8.32 when he said this for you. And that's why when you take communion, it's very personal. It says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. He didn't even spare his own son. He gave him up for you. 
So in that great work of the atonement, in that great work of Christ on the cross, he steps in that place where you and I should have been. I'm thinking of that statement in Matthew 20, 28. You know it well, where the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. That's what he did. He came to give his life. He stood in your place. He took your death. He took your sins. He took your iniquities. All your sin was laid upon him. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 2.6 where it says that he gave himself as a ransom for all. In other words, he purchased you and purchased your sins in his own death. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Think about that. He bore your sins in his body on the cross. In fact, do you see Jesus suffering there even now? There's a sense of it. Can you hear the taunts of the crowd? Can you see his forehead torn and bleeding as the barbed thorn gouge his head? Look where his flesh is torn from his back because they flogged him without mercy. His face is swollen from ruthless beatings. Now they are driving spikes through his hands, feet into the wood of the cross. All of that was for you. But look what Isaiah says, though when he went to that kind of suffering for you. Look at 53, verse 7. You remember this great text. It says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And when he finally does cry out, It is not a curse against his killers. It's a plea to God. Think about this. As we come even to Easter in a few weeks and we come to our Good Friday service, I believe is on April 18th. But think about this. Remember when he did finally cry out, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou, what, forsaken me? MacArthur explains the significance of the other statement that he said when when he said, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this, what? cup pass from me and he asked what is the cup when he wanted the cup to pass from him what what was the cup that was he was asking to be passed well it's not merely death it is not the physical pain of the cross it is not the scourging or the humiliation It is not the horrible thirst, the torture of having nails driven through his body, or even the disgrace of being spat upon or beaten. It is not even all of those things combined. What Christ dreaded most about the cross, the cup from which he asked to be delivered, if possible, was the outpouring of divine wrath that he should have to endure from his Holy Father. That's the cup. And he says, not my will be done, but thine. And he steps in your place so that the fury of God's wrath would be spent on his son and not spent on you. So when Christ prayed that if possible, the cup might pass from him, he spoke of drinking the cup of divine judgment. And the next day, 
As it says here in the scripture, he would bear the sins of many and the fullness of divine wrath would fall literally on him. Listen, in some mysterious way, in a way that our human minds could never fathom, God the Father would turn his face from Christ the Son and Christ would bear the full brunt of the divine fury against sin. He took your sin. So our substitute, Jesus Christ, bears the penalty of our sins that we may be pardoned, if you will. In fact, look down at verse 11. It says there, does the writer, speaking the word of God, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, our Lord's sacrifice for our sins satisfied the holiness of God against sin. And in bearing our sins, Jesus becomes our substitute for the death and wrath that we so justly deserved. So listen, not only in Christ's death do we see the sovereignty of God. Not only do we see, secondly, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But thirdly, we see the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. You say, well, where is it? Well, it's there in verse 11. Look, look there. The doctrine of justification. It says there, it says, Out of the anguish of a soul he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, now watch this, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The key there in verse 11 for the doctrine of justification is that he will make many to be accounted as righteous. What a great statement. So what does that mean? That he will make many to be accounted as righteous. It's the doctrine of justification. And we've explained that before here. If, if I were to bring you up and put this microphone in your face, or if I called somebody out of the crowd, which I won't do, you might be afraid that I would do that. And I said, what is the doctrine of justification? What does that mean in that phrase, make many to be accounted righteous? What, what does it mean to be accounted righteous? What is the doctrine of justification? It's all over the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3 verse, and chapter 4 as well as chapter 5, it speaks of being justified or it speaks here in this language of to make many to be accounted as righteous. Well, there's two things that, that, would, that would take place for that to, be, that to happen in verse 11. Number one, your sin to be accounted as righteous needs to be removed, right? That's the negative aspect. You're never, ever going to ever be righteous unless these two things happen. Your sin's got to be removed. In other words, you would never, ever, ever, ever in the, in the longest time ever get in the presence of God with sin. So to be accounted as righteous in God's sight your sin has to be taken away. It has to be removed. But then secondly, righteousness, as you know, has to be positively put into your account. So you've got a holy God who's so pure he can't look upon sin, right? And then you've got us as Sinners. So what needs to be done? And that's the age-old question of every religion of, in the world. 
How does a sinful man become righteous before a holy God? And of course, the false religions are going to tell you to do something. They're going to tell you that you must do this. They're going to tell you you must, you know, cite this prayer. They're going to tell you that you must give this amount. They're going to tell you that you've got to have these good works. And they're going to tell you a system of man-made righteousness. But the Scripture knows nothing of that. The Scripture tells us that we're sinners. And so the only way that you could ever be accounted for as righteous in verse 11 is to have your sins removed. But then even if your sins were removed, you know this, you still couldn't make it in the presence of God. Do you realize that? If, if it was, and this is just theology, if it was just the cross and your sins were taken away, it wouldn't be enough to get in the presence of God. You need something else. You need righteousness that you don't have. So Jesus Christ, by virtue of his righteous life, by virtue that he never failed to obey the law, by the fact that he was sinless, kept the law in utter perfection, went to the cross, died on your sins, in that transaction of saving faith, you have two things done. Your sin is removed and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is added into your account. So listen, as you come to the Lord's table, tell me how that makes any sense at all. Tell me how you have sinned, I have sinned, we had our fist in the face of Almighty God, and He sends His only begotten Son to step in your place to become the substitutionary atonement for your sin. But then as you come to saving faith in Him, He not only removes your sin, number one, secondly, He deposits into your account the perfect life of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So look at that in verse 11. It says there that He will make many to be accounted as righteous as He will bear their iniquities. What a wonderful thought of, that the Lord's done for us. What, what a wonderful transaction. You say, well, why would he do that for me? Well, there's only one answer, and, it, and it's, it's called grace. You didn't deserve any of this, and I didn't deserve any of this. In fact, for me, growing up, I didn't even know who God was. I didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. I never grew up around the truth, never heard the truth. From about zero to eight, eight years old, I never knew anything in God's grace came into my family's life, and I began to hear the teaching of the Word of God, and then I was confronted in my sin. Now, you know, and I know, but I'll just touch on it just to remind you. If you see that verse, how does anybody get that? In verse 11, when it says there towards the end, he will make many to be accounted as righteous, how do you get that? How does someone actually attain that? I mean, you want that. I, I mean, I would think people are paying millions of dollars to have their soul free, to, to feel at some point that they're connected to God. You've got some people walking up steps in certain places around the country, certain people that will be literally, in their way, nailed to the cross in the next three weeks, people making pilgrims. How do you get that? That is the age-old question. How does that transaction become yours? How do you, when it says that he will make many um, to be accounted righteous, how does that happen? Let me show you just real quick from the book of Romans. This is so important because this is the pure gospel. In Romans chapter 3, it tells us very clearly 
It says what it's not in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be, what? Justified in his sight. So whatever it is, that's not it. He says, Paul, that no works of the law could ever any human being ever be justified in his sight. No amount of good works that you could ever do or I could ever do would ever make you right. There's our word for righteous. There's that word justified. He says, look at verse 21. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it comes apart from that. You say, well, if it doesn't come through works and it doesn't come, it's manifested apart from the law. In other words, you can't observe the law to keep it. He said here, here's the answer in verse 22. The righteousness of God, what does it say? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? Believe. Righteousness comes to you. Declaration of justification comes to you. And it comes to any who would believe. It comes through a direct object, if I put it that way. And the direct object is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that anybody's ever saved. That's the only way anybody was saved in the Old Testament. They look forward to the coming Messiah. We now in the New Testament era look back, but it's all by grace through faith. In fact, look what it says in verse 24 as we come to the Lord's table that we are justified in Romans 3.24 by His grace as a gift. It's a gift. In fact, glance down at verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It says it again in verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's always faith in Jesus Christ. So listen, it says this in Hebrews, that he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Great text. Hebrews 9.26. He appeared. He was manifested. He came at his first coming to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Spurgeon, and only the way Spurgeon can put it, said this, See how red is your guilt. Mark the scarlet stain If you were to wash your soul in the Atlantic Ocean, you might incarnine, right, red, red, every wave that washes all its shores, yet the crimson spots of your transgression would still remain. He said, but plunge into the fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and in an instant, you, are whiter than snow. Spurgeon said, every spot, every speck, every stain of sin is gone and gone forever. May it be that as we come to the Lord's table, that our eyes will be open to behold our blessed Redeemer, who was indeed the suffering servant on behalf of our sins. I think Wesley's hymn says it all. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would what? 
die for me.